The Cavalcade of America. Although tonight's first episode carries us back to the year 1805, it may be remarked that even then, the chemical firm of DuPont had been established at Wilmington, Delaware. Thus, the cavalcade of America, portrayed from week to week on this DuPont radio program, is something that DuPont has seen, known, been a part of. And today, as in generations past, DuPont chemists are contributing to America's march of progress by making good their watchword, better things for better living through chemistry. Many of our listeners have been kind enough to write us telling why their families like this program, how their children use information from these stories in their schoolwork. It is most encouraging to receive mail like this. We'd like to hear from you, too. Just write DuPont, D-U-P-O-N-T, DuPont, Wilmington, Delaware, or your radio station. Our first story this evening begins in the New England of 1805. Our cavalcade orchestra sets the stage with Percy Granger's Country Gardens, adapted from an old English dance.
optimism and energy that spur men to enterprise have always been notable in American character. However doubtful of business or scientific venture, there's always been daring souls willing to attempt it. And this has often led to astonishing progress in a short span of time. Tonight from the Cavalcade of America, we have chosen two stories of individuals who wanted to forge ahead, who showed to a special degree the national trait of enterprise. It is the winter of 1805. On his estate near the small town of Saugus, Massachusetts, 22-year-old Frederick Tudor directs a group of men who are using ice saws on the heavy ice of a large pond. Have a care, Sam. Don't fall in. Well, it's good thick ice on this pond, Mr. Tudor. I'll take a hand on that saw in a minute. Mr. Tudor, there's a young lady to see you. A young lady? Standing on the shore. Why, Eliza. Good day, Frederick. What are you doing here? Why, oh, I'm delighted. I drove out from Boston with Father. He's in the sleigh. We've had no word from you in weeks. I must beg you to forgive me, Eliza. I meant to call and tell you myself of an idea I'm working on. Oh, but I have heard. If it's this ice plan of yours, Frederick, never have I known a project so silly. Oh, I know there are some who scoff at me, but... Some? Everyone. Oh, Boston is certain that you've lost your wits. Oh, indeed, Frederick, why should you take it upon yourself to ship ice to the tropics? Why should I not? Well, everyone recalls how Timothy Dexter, the silly man, sent warming pans to the Indies. Yes, I know, Oh, but... yes, that turned out successfully because they could be used as ladles. But ice? Oh, well, what use will you find for it once there, Frederick, my dear? Unless to cool your fevered brow. I mean to sell ice to whoever will buy it, to preserve food, to cool drinks. Never did I realize what a pack of busybodies inhabit the state of Massachusetts. Frederick. Oh, Eliza, I, I mean not you. I mean everyone else. Well, it's only that as your, your friend, I suffer ridicule, too. They call you the Ice King. Well, if you wish to deny my friendship, Eliza... Frederick, I, I must go back to the sleigh. If you do not sail, call on us. Thank you. Good day. Good day. Well, half the pond's cut, Mr. Tudor. Should we start to... Oh, does Mistress Eliza go so soon? Aye. She's angry because I'm making a fool of myself. It's a pity, Mr. Tudor. Oh, very likely it isn't. There should be girls as pretty and not so saucy in Martinique. All my friends will not desert me, I hope. And if they do, load the ice on the wagons, Eb, and we'll make for the Charleston docks. <laughs> Frederick Tudor, to the jeers of Boston, loaded his brig with 130 tons of ice and sailed for Martinique. The yellow fever epidemic was on the wane, though its sufferers were grateful for coolness in any form. But selling the ice generally proved a strange problem. To the marketplace of St. Pierre, Tudor and his sailors bring ice and pitchers of liquid. Ice be slippery stuff, Mr. Tudor. This piece must weigh 200 pounds. Yeah, burning my hand. Where should we put it down, Mr. Tudor? Hey, here's our stand right in the center. Place it on this overturned cast, Jeb. All right. I'll put our pitchers beside it. Yeah. Uh, uh, there you are, my beauty. Now maybe the stubborn French and natives will buy from us? Well, at least it'll give them a chance to see and feel it for themselves. I had thought more would come down to the vessel in the past month. No, they ain't got good sense, a whole lot of them. 
Mr. Tudor, I'll give a yell to draw a crowd from the street. All right, Ed. Looky, looky, looky. Good ice for sale. Good cold ice to use for fevers or sickness. To cool liquids and preserve meat. Ice for sale. Massachusetts ice. Yeah, now some of the brown skins are going to gather around. Just like monkeys, I declare. Well, the natives are little help to us. But their interest may attract the planters. Oh, they were. That's right. Take a good look at it. It's just like a diamond, only bigger. Look, Mr. Tudor. Two young ladies are quality. Perhaps they'll buy. Hélène, attendez. Pourquoi? Uh, bonjour, monsieur. Uh, bonjour, miss. Uh, would you care to inspect this ice? Qu'est-ce que c'est? Uh, it's ice from up north. Dites-vous, uh, ice? <laughs> yes, that's right, ice. <laughs> Touch it. Mais non, Marie. What got into them two, Mr. Tudor? Oh, they were frightened. That was the way with several people who came to the vessel to see it. Yeah, our piece of ice is melting awful fast in this sun, Mr. Tudor. Uh, Mr. Tudor. Oh, Mr. Hold. <laughs> we have just frightened away two pretty young ladies of Martinique who'd never seen ice before. If you know them, present our apologies. Yeah, how does the ice trade flourish, Mr. Tudor? Do the French buy from you? Uh, alas, no. Few of the British residents, like your friend uh, Mr. McCabe, have been so open-minded as to try my product. Yes, McCabe was pleased with your ice and sent me to try it. Oh, let me pour you a drink of this delicious cold lemonade, Mr. Holt. Yeah, you hear how pleasantly the ice tinkles in it? Well, it sounds uh, interesting. Here you are. Sip it, sir. Hmm. Hmm. Odd, isn't it? You perhaps find it strange at first. Would it uh, not be improved with uh, an infusion of hot water? Hot water, sir? Yes, uh, half and half, you know. A boiling drink and uh, ice. <laughs> I fear you don't grasp the purpose of ice, Mr. Holmes. Yeah, I've taken 20 pounds to try my theory. <laughs> Poor McCabe, you know, has had to throw away what he purchased from you as his cook, the best in Martinique. Thought it's a work of the devil. <laughs> Please send the ice to me at my home, Mr. Tudor. Very well, Mr. Holt. Good day to you, sir. Good day, sir. Thank you. Yeah, looks like that's the only sale we'll make, Mr. Tudor. Ice for his hot drink. Gee, hot to fat. Well, we might as well go back to the brig, Sam. Somehow, as a Boston man, I forgot that you'd have to start right from the beginning and explain what ice is to men who've never seen it. Yeah, it will give Boston a great laugh when we come sailing home with our cargo. I'll build an ice house for it and leave it here. And not to keep Boston from laughing, Sam but to keep Martinique aware of coolness in its reach. When I hear one sensible reason for not using ice in the tropics, I'll retreat to Massachusetts, but not before. Patiently, stubbornly, young Frederick Tudor clung to his dream. Presently, the islands that had first seen no use for ice began to demand it. Martinique, Jamaica, and Cuba used Tudor's Massachusetts ice. Charleston, Savannah, and New Orleans began to import their share. The years passed, and Frederick Tudor became a wealthy man. But in his middle age, his courage was to meet a final test. We find him at his office in Boston. How far have you copied my dictating, Sam? Well, I have it here, Mr. Tudor. And... Had it not been for the behavior of my Havana agent, this would not have befallen. I beg of you as a man who must have sometime known unwarranted reverses to give me a chance to find the needed funds and not force bankruptcy upon me. Zem, is that too servile? <laughs> You've got no way out but pleading, Mr. Tudor. Yeah, that's so. 
I fear he'll not heed it either. You ought to try and get a bit of sleep, sir. Uh, don't post that letter yet, Mr. Deb. Mr. Tudor, what good does it do for you to go on hoping? I, uh, I beg your pardon. There's uh, no one in the outer office, so I walked in. Beg your pardon, sir? What can I do for you? If this is Mr. Tudor, may I speak to him? I am Mr. Tudor. How may I serve you, sir? Well, I'll come direct to the point, Mr. Tudor. I'm Walter Sly, in with the big Jeremiah from Calcutta. Oh, Calcutta. Well, you've journeyed far to Boston, sir. I've come the long way around on a voyage to England, sir, that I might stop here and negotiate for my friends in India. Mr. Tudor, they've heard of your Massachusetts ice. In India? I'm indeed flattered. You'll be more pleased to hear that they ought to have a mind to taste it for themselves. My ice to Calcutta? Well, I'm sorry, Mr. Sly. If only this had come sooner, I... Oh, you cannot oblige us? But in the Calcutta clubs, they're already boasting of cool drinks they'll serve. The British hospital uh, is... Mr. Re- Tudor, the merchants of Boston have long wished for more of the Calcutta trade. Aye, so they have. If we shipped ice, uh, Mr. Schley, hmm? would not Calcutta agents be inclined to accept other goods from our port if they liked our ice? Why, I think that's very likely. Uh, don't you see, Mr. Tudor, what you might do? Why, yes, I see. But we'll not conceal our plight from our visitor. Mr. Schley, two minutes ago, I could not have borrowed ten cents to keep my business. Now, with your help, I see a way to redeem myself. I've long been your honest admirer, Mr. Tudor. I hadn't dreamed you were in difficulties. I believe, looking back, that I have never been in anything else. Mr. Schley, if you will oblige me by making it widely known in Boston that you want ice and possibly later other merchandise... But that is to oblige myself, sir. I do want ice. So do all the British and Americans in Calcutta. Zeb, find out at once what merchants most desire Oriental trade. From one of them, I can borrow all I'll need. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. And, Mr. Sly, be seated, sir. While we make out consignments for your friends, I have an almost certain feeling India will get that ice. Frederick Tudor's death, his unique and now little-known trade in ice, covered the world, bringing much foreign commerce to Boston. The spirit of enterprise, few traits have given such zest to American life and created so many possibilities for men of initiative in the cavalcade of America. ups and downs of the last few years, there have been plenty of brave souls who have never lost their faith and courage. The next story in this evening's Cavalcade of America, presented by DuPont, is a present-day instance of how Americans pit their strength determinedly against great odds. It is 1935. At the docks in San Francisco, a ship is preparing to sail on a mission never before undertaken, an effort by Pan American Airways to establish basis for a 9,000-mile ocean airplane route to China. Odd-looking and complicated machinery, expensive electrical apparatus, quantities of food and lumber are still being rushed aboard. In the milling crowd on shore, young Jim Harwood tries to push his way to the gangplank. 
Hey, you, this is North Haven. Let me through. I got to see the boss. Quit shoving. You can get through here. If you're looking for a job, they won't give you one. Says who? What do you bet? I'll bet five bucks, Mr. Wise Guy. Hey, what's the roughest? Well, everybody keep back now. The gangplank's going up in a minute. Hey, wait. I'm sailing with this ship. Yeah? Where's your car? Oh, come on, buddy. Let me aboard. Where's the guy who does the hiring? <laughs> the construction crew that's taking this joint was picked by a committee weeks ago. Oh, no, I don't care if they was picked by Congress. Oh, come on now. You don't look like a fella that'd keep me out of this job. I've been planning to go with this outfit from the minute I heard about the trip. I've been taking night engineering courses, too. What's he want, Shorty? I think she's going to talk me into letting him aboard. I got my order, son. Well, maybe you ought to let him see the chief. One of the carpenters didn't show up. I'm a carpenter. <laughs> yes, you are. A second ago, you was an engineer. Well, I'm both. Oh, I've been working like a dog to get ready for this crew. I haven't thought about anything else. Oh, take him aboard, Shorty. There's time. All right, kid. Come on up to gangplank. <laughs> Thanks. Say, it looks like you got a load on board. Yeah. Yeah, we got everything from safety pins to full-size windmills. Anything you'd need to build two villages and five air bases. Got 250,000 gallons of fuel and over half a year's supply of food. <laughs> now look sharp, will you? There's a load of stuff on deck. Now don't step on anything. How many men sailing? Oh, 87 construction stiffs, 44 technicians. Pick men there. Hey, Mr. Saunders. Yeah, what is it, Shorty? Man looking for a bursar. Well, there's no time. We're about to sail. Say, listen, Mr. Saunders. Here's a letter from my boss in St. Louis. Read it quick, please. All right. Uh, I'm a good carpenter. I've been taking machinist courses at night, too. I loaned a man some money, though, and didn't get it back, so I couldn't get out here except by hitchhiking partway. Yeah, you look I... strong. Oh, I'm hard as nails. I'm skinny, but I got muscle. Look. Oh, give me a chance, Mr. Saunders. This is a good letter. You can stay. Oh, wait. You know all about this expedition? <laughs> Who doesn't? You're going to fix up bare bases for Trans-Pacific planes. Yeah, via Honolulu, Midway, Wake, Guam, and Manila. Your watch below don't mean a thing when an extra's needed at sea. Oh, I'll work like a Trojan, sir. On the small Pacific islands, we don't guarantee much food or water. Oh, I can eat light. I want to see those islands. And you'll be gone six months. That's okay. Am I hired? Looks like you'll have to be. We're sailing. Come on, Chips. I'll take you below. Boy, I'll bet there ain't a bunk on the ship your size. Ah, who cares? I'm aboard, ain't I? I wanted to do some pioneering, and I'm going to. Where's that guy in the dock who bet me? Oh, there he is. Hey, you. Goodbye. So long. Send that five to me by the first airplane. The North Haven, a kind of mechanical Noah's Ark, left San Francisco with tons of equipment and a crew of picked men. Establishing an air base at Honolulu was comparatively easy. At the island of Midway, for many years a cable station, the work was far more arduous. After torturing, patient labor, a village, a landing float, and a wireless station were constructed. 1,500 miles along was the wake group of three tiny uninhabited islands, isolated in the Pacific, where the North Haven pioneers were to find their most treacherous task. At this moment, on small Peel Island, Jim Harwood hacks at some scrub on the edge of a tough ironwood jungle. Nearby, his friend Shorty lies in the shade of some scrub. How oh, the sun gets me. Now, you better take it easy a minute. Yeah. It's sure nice, Jim, to ask Saunders if I could come over here with your crew. I was tired lying sick aboard, heaving up and down all the time like I was in a darn cradle. And you feel better now you're on shore, Shorty? Oh, sure. 
I'm sick of the ocean anyway. I'm tired of nothing but blue water and coral reefs and white beaches and funny-looking birds and islands. Oh, I don't feel like that. I'm never going to forget the sound of surf. <laughs> I like to be a passenger on a plane landing here. Ain't you figure out how it'd be? <laughs> you look down and there'd be a, a hotel and gardens all fixed up. Now, I guess we got something out of this that people coming after us will never get. There. There. Ah. Oh. Anyway, what I want right now is some water. Ooh, my tongue feels like a piece of wool. There won't be any water if you and Pete don't get you still to working, will there? You know, it don't make sense to have to distill salt water just to get a drink. Well, the fancy electric stills one haywire, see? <laughs> Look at Saunders and that well-driving crew standing in the sun. <laughs> They've been four hours bone dry. Hey, Jim. What is it, Pete? Your still's starting to work. I got a good fire, finally. Well, watch that coil. I'll bring some more wood. Now, wait a minute, Jim. What's going wrong in this station, anyway? I've been too sick to care before, but is it just not finding water that's holding things up? Well, there's three islands here, see? The chief have been told to put up the permanent station on Wilkes and the other across the lagoon there. Yeah? Well, why don't he? Well, because Mr. Kane gave it the once-over, and he said right away that sometime or other it's been completely underwater. My gosh. Yeah, you said it. But that's what those scientists are for. Keep us from getting our feet wet. Of course, not finding water on Wilkes or Wake either one. Well, that was a tough break. But they haven't given up looking for it here on Peel. Well, what if they don't find it here either? Oh, I don't know. I guess they'd build enough stills after a while. <laughs> Only it'd be kind of tough on us in the meantime. Hey, Jim, look. A half a tub of water. It don't taste so good, but it's water. Oh, boy. You wait here a minute, Shorty. Hey, listen, Pete. Take it right up to Saunders and the boys. You take the other side. There. Now lift it steady. All right. There you are. I've got it. Yeah. Watch your step going up this hill. All right. Little roots sticking out of the sand. Yeah. Holy sun. The minute your work gets you. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Say, Saunders and his crew and crew look excited. Put down the tub, Pete. There you are. I'll take a tub, too. Tell them we got some water. Hey, Mr. Saunders. Don't bother me now. Well, you said to report when my still worked. It's working. I tinkered all night. I got... Oh, we've hit shale again, Saunders. Mr. Saunders, I never got near enough to ask you, but why can't I stand the permanent crew at Wake? For the love of Pete! Is this the time to bother me with crazy questions? Uh, no, sir, but still, I asked you the night of the victory banquet at Midway, and you said that maybe... Listen, maybe no one will stay here. Maybe there'll be no air route to China, the way it looks now. Yeah, have a drink, Mr. Saunders. It's real water. Uh, thanks. Not so bad. Pass it out to my men. Uh, now could I stay? If... My heavens, yes, stay, if anyone stays. Oh, we're in sand again, Mr. Saunders. Oh, yeah? Maybe we might make it now. Right here. Like some water. Now, this looks like something. What is it? Water! 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 What's the big news? Is it real water? Oh, Shorty. Hey, you go back and lie down. No, no, you wait and get drink first. Hey, Shorty, I'm going to stay here. Drink and wish me luck. of water speeded the Wake Island project. Wearily, doggedly, the men of the North Haven constructed their aerial base on Peel Island. After completing the bases at Guam and Manila, the North Haven took aboard the construction crew and sailed for home. But Jim Harwood and a group of airport technicians remained. 
It is November the 26th, 1935. In the radio room on Peel Island, a young man listens intently before his instrument. Jim Harwood enters. Hey, Clem. Patterson says I'm to wait here and run the errands you need. All right, quiet. China Clipper. China Clipper. Calling wait. Okay, China Clipper, go ahead. China Clipper. Sighted base. On schedule. 20 miles east of Wake. Altitude, 8,000. Wake to China Clipper. Okay, China Clipper, come on in. Ceiling unlimited. Visibility, good. Wind southeast, 8. Sea moderate. Gee, they'll be here in a minute. That's hard to believe. Yeah, you've seen planes come in before. Sure, but not with mail to the Philippines. This is official. Everything ready on the float? Well, the mechs have been lined up for hours. Hey, listen. Well, it's flying almost 200 per in the last full report, so it'll land in a minute. It's come over 5,000 miles. Calm yourself. It'll be one a week pretty soon. China Clipper, coming in for landing. Okay, China Clipper, I'll set for you. Hey, look at her, Clem. Here she is. <laughs> She's a beauty. Hey, watch your circle. Hitting the channel just right. The China Clipper. Boy, don't tell me the history books won't give her just as big a hand as the Mayflower. United States to China in less than a week. It seemed like a dream only a few short months ago, but it is a brilliant reality today, thanks not only to Pan American skillful pilots, but to the construction engineers and crews who preceded them. Americans who might have held far easier jobs took difficult work because the end in view challenged their strength and purpose. This ability to set a goal for oneself and to get there has been a mark of Americans in every age. The spirit of enterprise continues to be outstanding in the cavalcade of America. That story about taking ice to the West Indies was really pretty amazing to me because I'd never thought of the obvious fact that tropical lands in those old times just didn't know what ice was. Nowadays, even on the equator, your ice man will keep your refrigerator filled with pure ice or you can own your own private ice plant in the shape of an automatic refrigerator. And that indeed is one of the real blessings of science. The discovery of refrigeration and the widespread use of ice has made a big change in living conditions. Even the farmer in New England or Minnesota or any other northern state, despite the fact that he can cut ice out of his pond and haul enough to the ice house to last all summer, even he benefits from refrigeration. Refrigerator railway cars and boats bring him foods that he wouldn't otherwise be able to get frequently or economically, and also permit him to ship the products that he raises, widening his market and increasing his income. But don't think the American farmer is behind the times on this ice proposition. <laughs> no, sir. You'll find plenty of handsome refrigerators in farmhouses. Then there's the fishing industry, which has so greatly widened its scope through the frosting or freezing of seafoods and the transportation of fresh fish in refrigerated cars and ships and the great packing industry, which depends so largely on refrigerated storage of meats. You may not realize it, but in colonial times, if you wanted a sirloin steak, you just waited until somebody killed a cow. And that might not be until next month. And all of you folks who like ice cream, just remember that this favorite American dessert is another gift of refrigeration. It also is interesting to note that the far-flung island bases of the Pacific air route couldn't exist without refrigeration to preserve supplies. 
We can thank chemistry for all the joys of ample ice. Certain chemicals, in changing from a liquid to a gas, absorb so much heat that a freezing cold temperature is created. Chemists have discovered a number of such chemicals which are useful as refrigerants, and several of them are made by DuPont. In their contribution to human enjoyment, they well illustrate the importance of chemical research and the watchword of DuPont chemists, better things for better living through chemistry. at this same time, DuPont will present a program that pays tribute to the courage and loyalty of American womanhood, shown both in pioneer times and today, in the cavalcade of America. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.